Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And we're back with an all-new Keep It live from the Bonsoir. I'm Ira Madison III. I'll be singing Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf in seven octaves. I'm Louis Fertel. <laughs> Later this episode, we are going to get into Barbara Streisand's long-ass memoir. Like, this bitch has ruined my week. No kidding. And also, I'm listening to it on audiobook insistently. And I don't do the 1.5x speed. I listen to it to hear it at Barbara's normal speaking voice. You had to. It's like I've moved into a monastery and she's the main monk. Like, my entire life is about Barbara Streisand right now. I'm only 10 hours in of 48 hours. Honestly, it's so delightful. I don't want it to end and I don't want it to go any faster. So we can talk about how that is exciting as she always is but of course there's been some other new cultural developments this week first of all the queen of pop is back i'm kidding but dua lipa did release a new song she is a (laughs) pop musician who was a woman certainly can agree there (laughs) she enters the studio yes right she is a recording artist yes it's on her linkedin right (laughs) find her on soundcloud yeah Do you like it? I kind of feel the same way about the song that I do, Dance the Night, which was, at first, it felt like just a run-of-the-mill Dua Lipa song, you know, like the arithmetic mean of what she gives us. But at the same time, Dance the Night sort of gained something on me. Now when I listen to it, I'm a little bit more into it, and I feel like Houdini, which is her new song. And also, I just love name-dropping celebrities from the early 20th century, period. So, you know, I'm like, all right, I'm in on this. You know, (laughs) weird Hungarian men who put themselves in milk jugs and then almost die. We love that. I would say it's a B-minus song, a good playlist starter when you're watching YouTube with the girls before you go out. Well, speaking of Dance the Night, I sang that at karaoke on Friday unexpectedly Oh, to tease more, to name drop. Our guest this week is Emerald Fennell, and I was at this Saltburn dinner on Friday, mm. seated next to her. She's our guest this week. As well. So we talk a bit about last Friday. Uh, We talk about the movie with her this week. But because of the movie, there's a scene where there's a karaoke scene in it. Oh, right. And I guess someone had signed up for Dance the Night and then decided they they didn't want to do it. So the person running the karaoke is just standing there, confused, terrified, holding the mic. And I was like, well, I'm a faggot. I know this song. Right. So I took it. In a movie, this would be the part where you become a giant pop star. Like, unexpectedly, you had to sing this. 
Uh, there's close-ups of everyone watching how good I am. Yes, right. <laughs> Aghast, <laughs> exchanging glances. Yeah. And then I was like, you know what? Kind of a good karaoke song. Interesting. Well, it's not terribly difficult to sing. Right. It's a song that I feel like grew on me too. It is, I would say, a lot like Houdini in that we thought they were going to be departures from the future nostalgia era. I feel like there's been a lot of conversation about how this is going to be a new era, etc. Right. They sort of sound like future nostalgia, like thick songs that got cut from the album. To be honest. Yes, that's exactly what it sounds like to yeah. me. Exactly. But Dance the Night is Mark Ronson. And there are bits where you can sense the Mark Ronson-ness. I think like the opening of the song, Dance the Night, is very Mark Ronson, you know, but then it just sort of becomes a regular duo song. And I would say the same for Houdini, which is produced by Kevin Parker from Tame Impala, my father. Uh-huh. And Danny Harl, my other father. He's in PC Music, which is the group that, you know, includes Charlie XCX, Caroline Polachek, included Sophie. And, you know, that sort of hyperpop genre, mm-hmm. which I adore. And I was excited to hear that mix with Kevin Parker's sort of psychedelic rock guitar mushroom vibe music. And you get it at the end a bit, but there's not enough. It doesn't feel psychedelic enough. Well, it also doesn't really feel like a complete song to me. It feels like there's a verse missing or something in talking about Houdini. Yeah. Also, I'm sorry. I thought of the meanest joke and I'm just going to have to say it. When you said Charlie XCX <laughs> and Caroline Polachek, I, I was thinking, oh, the Hu-Tang clan? Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I'm, they're nice people and make good music. I don't know why. It just needed to be said. I'm sorry. When you write for late night, half of your job is writing puns and I'm sorry, but your brain goes there. Moving on. So nasty, yeah. so rude. <laughs> <laughs> But it does sound a bit unfinished. There's an interesting part in the beginning of the song where she says, like, go very softly. Mm. And then the music starts, which makes me think that the preceding song on the album may sort of bleed into it. A little confessions on a dance floor. Yes. Right. You know, but I mean, would that this song were as massive as hung up. Right, right, right. That was a departure. That was an era. That was giving disco. I was like, if we're going to get funk and psychedelic on this album, then like this should have been some Jefferson Airplane shit. (laughs) Um, Also, I would say, I'm surprised this is the lead single. Mm -hmm. Like, it just feels like a third or fourth single. And by the way, in listening to this song on YouTube over the weekend before going out, you know what song I was reacquainted with that just came up out of nowhere? Future Nostalgia, which was so good. Mm-hmm. And I feel like people thought it was like the worst song on the album or something. To me, that had a point of view. And it also sounds a little bit like um, that song Pop Music by, you know, everybody talking about pop music, that song. Yeah. And I, I love the reference of that. I love like the sassiness of it. I like that song. So I hope she finds a little bit more sass to put into the music. And by the way, her outfit in the video, simply baffling. Simply baffling. What is this? Like net <laughs> it's black netting over like a bodice over like something nude tucked into athletic pants. It's actually something I would expect Troy Savon to wear, not her. I think all the gays at basement are wearing that yeah. every weekend. So <laughs> th- maybe that's her vibe. Yeah. Rave girl. Yeah. Did you see her on this red carpet where she's just wearing a red sweatshirt and jeans and she looks like she's like in the babysitter's club? Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> That will literally be the fashion in three years, though. I know, which is fine. I I remember shopping at H&M and just wanting an oversized sweatshirt and moving right along. Yeah. Also, we are approaching your favorite season, which is 
awards season. Yes. And I feel like we're both starting to see the films. Yes. We're, we're starting to go to the screenings. Yep. I saw The Iron Claw last night, which was very sad, but it wasn't slit your wrist sad. Oh, interesting. I've been sadder in the theater before. You know, maybe just because you know where the story is going. Well, by the way, not everybody knows that story. It's a very, very dour story of this wrestling family. Oh, that's fair. And many of them meet grisly ends. But Zac Efron stars in it. And I don't remember the last true Zac Efron prestige project. We once upon a time tried a couple times. There are movies like that, Me and Orson Welles. Um, I don't think 17 again counts as prestige. You know what I mean? Just like, it's like a new lane for him and it already feels like he's doing the Mickey Rourke and the wrestler thing yeah. where we're getting acquainted with the dark reality of being Zac Efron. And I believe that exists. Well, no one saw it, but he did star as Ted Bundy. Right, yes. And extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. I did not watch it. Too bad there are 50,000 Ted Bundy projects. So <laughs> it's like Spider-Man at this point. We have like 35 Ted Bundys. And I only want to see Al Bundy products. Precisely. Yeah, Katie Seagal, come back. Where's Peggy? Yeah. <laughs> I have been a huge fan of Zac Efron, obviously, since high school musical. We're both millennials of the same age. So I think we kind of grew up with him. And it, it's nice to see him in a role like this. I thought he was great. I thought that Harris Dickinson is great in it. I think that Jeremy Allen White is very good in it. It's a really good cast. It's sort of um, Virgin Suicides-esque. It's very sad movie for sad boys. Okay, okay. Well, Harris Dickinson in particular, I think, specializes in that. If you ever saw the movie Beach Rats, there's just a yes. melancholic languor about being, you know, a closeted dude on the shores. Awful movie. I don't like it. I disagree. I think it's good. I think it's good. It's just, it's it's more like evocative and moody than it is like a dynamic movie. Yeah. The vibes are off for me, <laughs> but I much prefer him in Triangle of Sadness. He was great in that. And yet it wasn't really a showcase role for him either. But also that movie zigs when you think it's going to zag and then it spirals. So it's not really about any one character. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Ruben Oslin films are sort of like that, though. They're very long and... Everyone who's in the first 40 minutes of the film, the movie is not actually about them. Yeah, right, right, right. Even though the beginning of that movie is great. I, the middle section of that movie is the real good part. The Dolly DeLeon scene, I didn't really care about the last hour that much, which is, I think, not the popular opinion. It's not. Speaking of Katie Seagal, I'm a rebel. Anyway. <laughs> but the movie is very vibes. It's also great if you're a wrestling fan. And if you're a wrestling fan who loves the camp and vintage era of wrestling too. So it sort of has this sad, very emotional film, but it also is, you know, tethered to the camp of wrestling in the 80s. And so that is very fun to watch. And I think that the wrestling scenes are especially amazing. Oh, that's interesting. I think that Sean Durkin, who did Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Love that movie. He's really good at the wrestling scenes. There's a lot of really good angles. There's a lot of really good shots. I think it's, um, it's very dynamic in that respect as well. This gets me excited for the inevitable American Gladiators movie, which we had the two docs this year. <laughs> I'm telling you, when that comes out, Oscars will be won. I'm telling you, whoever gets to play Gemini, that's going to be the role. Two things I will say about this film, though, is the obviously it's about the Von Erich family, which is a wrestling family that was believed to be cursed because most of the brothers died. Zac Efron plays the only surviving brother 
who's currently still alive, but has three kids and 16 grandkids, and they all live on a ranch together. Oh, wow. It's sort of like a happy ending to the tragedy that befell his family in the 80s and 90s. But um, they cut out a brother from the film. That's so weird because it feels like the movie is on this planet to like convey reality. Be like, here's everything that happened to this, right. you know, allegedly cursed clan. And the curse continues. Now their brother's being deleted. <laughs> Three of the brothers died by suicide, and one of the brothers is completely erased from the movie, allegedly for time constraints. But wow, very wild to do this film. <laughs> Call up the guy who played Chuck Cunningham on Happy Days. Let's get some commiseration going. <laughs> Judy Winslow on the dial. That's one of the sore spots about the movie. It didn't affect me while watching it, but when I read about the family, their history more after watching it, I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, weird, weird, weird. Well, I just saw The Holdovers with Paul Giamatti, mm. which is the new Alexander Payne movie. I think my favorite thing about the movie is it takes place on like a boarding school campus and not much in the way of a soundscape. It, other than some church music, it takes place around Christmas. And I'm obsessed with movies that take place around Christmas that aren't about Christmas. that are about the days before and afterwards. I talk all the time about the movie Metropolitan from the early 90s, which is about these fancy, sort of pretentious kids in their early 20s, hanging around the holidays and the debutante balls and the after parties they attend. And it's just a chill hangout movie. This isn't quite a chill hangout movie, but you get that kind of holiday vibe that isn't schmaltzy. Mm -hmm. uh, Divine Joy Randolph is in it. She's really good. She's actually the front writer for the Oscar right now. And I feel like she could have played this part in her sleep. I don't know that I see an Oscar for her. Well, Kathy Bates just won a supporting Oscar for a sleepwalking role. Nominated, yes. I'm oh, sorry. She didn't win for that role, did she? She was nominated for Richard Jewell, a movie that I guess we just won't watch again. And then... <laughs> She beat J-Lo, who is, you know, such a dynamic supporting force in Hustlers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who won that year? Laura Dern in Marriage Story, which I think is a great performance. It's actually controversial among my friends. I like that performance. I think it's controversial because people were really rooting for J-Lo. Yeah, right, right. Also this week, I'm going to be seeing The Color Purple, which there's no word about that movie yet, other than people think Taraji Henson might have it in the bag, which would be interesting because, as you know, in the 80s, Margaret Avery, who played that role, lost to Angelica Houston. And of course, Oprah Winfrey also lost to Angelica Houston. But um, for that to be a player in the supporting categories, again, really gets the vintage Oscars buff in me excited. And actually, Angelica should present the Oscar tauntingly. Taunting black women at the Oscars. What are you, Neil Patrick Harris? <laughs> Here comes three hours of magic before we get to the first category. <laughs> And Octavia Spencer, like, let me out of here. Right. <laughs> Getting an Oscar earned her a spot in his bit. Yeah. I would love Taraji to be um, a front runner because of this film, because I would love to wash the taste of that Benjamin Button <laughs> out of my mouth. Right. That role is so like a conventional Oscars y role, and she is cooler than that. So I would like to see her uh, nominated for this. But anyway, lots of. Um, prestige stuff coming up. What is happening in this episode? Well, as I already said, we are going to talk about Barbara's memoir. Yes. And also, the Grammy nominations are out. All 7,500 categories. I can't wait to comb through them one by one. Yes. Best Tejano slash Hawaiian slash goth album or whatever is <laughs> on the docket. <laughs> and our guest this week is Emerald Fennell. Uh, and we're going to talk to her about Salt burn and a little bit of promising young woman in there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what goes on in her crazy, crazy mind. We do not get to 
her love of Vanderpump Rules, though, which we did talk about Friday evening oh. at dinner. Well, that's a conversation between you, you two, and God, not Lewis. <laughs> Lewis is going to be like, get that shit out of here. Yeah, no. All right, we will be right back with more Keep It. You guys know all about Karyuma shoes. They're cool, they're ethically made, and you can actually walk around in them without having to take embarrassing little breaks. Crooked just released a Love It or Leave It sneaker. They come in pink and black and have really fun L.A.-inspired designs, which is exactly how I would describe John Lovett. Oh, yes. Agreed. Also, a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. Crooked's last collaboration with Kiriuma sold out super quickly, so make sure to snag a pair while you still can. Just head to crooked.com slash door. Keep It's awards season coverage starts now. Wahoo! <laughs> with this year's Grammy nominations. There are some obvious picks, some surprises, and some nominees who were so excited they had to bother everybody on a flight. <laughs> right. Did you see that? Wait, who are you talking about? Gospel singer Bobby Storm. Oh, yes, she refused to stop singing. I saw it. Yeah, she discovered she was up for two Grammys, which, shout out to her. Yeah. That's a great accomplishment. But then she started singing on her flight. And if you see the video, a flight attendant goes up to talk to her. And she's like, everyone's enjoying it. And he says, well, I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> also, I refuse to stop singing. Sounds like the name of a gospel album. I'm sorry it's fitting. <laughs> Listen, I'm happy for her. But then she started to say that God wanted her to sing for the people on the flight. And I'm sorry, she was on Delta. I am not sitting on a Delta flight needing to listen to your caterwauling, okay? No, no, no. Like, I don't need the praise and the worship when I am on a flight. I've already gone through TSA, which means I've been through hell. Yeah, right. Also, Delta has that movie selection, so I'm already deep into mm. things I've avoided in the theater, like me and Earl and the Dying Girl or whatever I'm watching on the screen. I don't have to listen to that. I remember Kanye did this once before, too, and I think that one of my pet peeves is people singing like that in a public confined space that you cannot escape. I don't know if you know this about a plane you can't leave. Um, you have to be <laughs> on the plane. So that needs to be explained like, to somebody who is taking up all of the space with singing, right? It's like, did you see that video of Swifties heading to the Eras tour earlier this year? And I guess the plane was delayed and they started singing Taylor songs. And I was like, where's my gun? Yeah, get me the parachute. Here comes some D.B. Cooper shit. I'm getting off. <laughs> but back to the Grammys, which are usually racist. <laughs> but this year, they ate that one little thing. Because SZA has the majority of the nominations this year with nine for her album SOS. Wow, that is a lot. Which is not my favorite. It's a little disjointed. Yeah. It's not Control. Control was an amazing album. I still listen to that right. front to back. Mm -hmm. SOS, I skip around quite a bit. I will say that I've discovered that a lot of Ivy League white gay men in New York City use the album SOS as their sex playlist. 
Don't ask me how I know. Just straight through, top to bottom. You need to vary the playlist. Yes. Where's some deep French house? You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's just like they just put it on there. Mm. They just put on SOS and let it play. I've been told this by multiple people. Victoria Monet has the second most nominations this year. And I have to say... My queen. If I'm my mama won record of the year... I don't think that's going to happen because I feel like that's usually a populist type of vote. Yeah. That would be pretty fucking rad for the category because a lot of people here. Well, actually, Flowers by Miley Cyrus would also be a good call. And the reason I say this is not just because it's a giant hit. Miley Cyrus has never won a Grammy before and, in fact, has been nominated for basically only two Grammys. And one of them is Album of the Year for Montero because she's a featured artist on that album with uh, (laughs) Lil Nas X. So it's like she is completely underrepresented at the Grammys. And her music has gotten, I mean, better and better over the years. Yeah. I enjoyed bangers. Well, I would say everything uh, from the Hannah Montana era is better than Endless Summer Vacation, but (laughs) your mileage may vary on that one. Yeah. I like a couple of songs on Endless Summer Vacation. Yeah. It's a well-produced album, and she sounds great. It's just the songs don't really stick with me. The limo's not out front, okay? Right. There it is. (laughs) My best friend Leslie says, eh. Yeah. (laughs) I would also be incredibly excited for Victoria Monet winning for On My Mama, which is maybe my favorite song of the year. And also the album is just, it's so good. And she's such a great live performer. And she's just such, seems like a very sweet person. I mean, she's worked for years as a songwriter and now she's having this huge glow up moment. And she's the second most nominated black woman after SZA. I would say second most nominated person, but um, Phoebe Bridgers is also tied with her for seven nominations. But, um, It's a really great story for Victoria Monet because if you recall, she did not perform at the VMAs this year. And she posted that the MTV told her team that it just was too early in her story for her to perform at the VMAs this year in the main ceremony or even in the pre-ceremony, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah, that is shocking. When you consider the people who performed at that fucking show. And so for that to happen to her earlier this year and then to get seven fucking Grammy nominations, it's like MTV sounds like they are once again behind the curve. Also, the other nominees for Record of the Year, we have John Batiste, we have Billie Eilish, we have Olivia Rodrigo. Him again. Taylor Swift. I would say all of these people have produced better music before and have been rewarded yes. Grammys for it. Like I'm surprised, like, Billie Eilish, the What Was I Made For? It seems like the front runner to win the Oscar again, which would be her second Oscar in the Best Original Song category. Not saying it's bad. Not saying I don't enjoy its place in the Barbie movie, which I famously disliked. (laughs) I wouldn't put it in my favorite, like, 15 Billie Eilish songs, honestly. Name 14 others. Watch me. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, Let me pull it up. No, I honestly wouldn't either. You know. It's not even in my favorite songs on the Barbie soundtrack. Right, which is a very dynamic soundtrack and all over the place. And you know, I was wondering, by the way, did I bring this up before? Hands by Kylie Minogue, which has a weird Barbie name drop in the middle of it. Do you think she was going for the Barbie soundtrack and then it didn't get on? I think whoever wrote that song was going for the Barbie soundtrack. And then Kylie walked into the studio and they handed it to her. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. I do not believe that Kylie was involved in any heavy songwriting or production on this album in particular. It feels very, I got a Vegas show to do. Yeah. It feels very 
pussycat dolls hearing the album for the first time. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. She said that she wrote the song Tension. She tells stories about writing that in the studio. So maybe not the entire thing, but I do see what you mean. Speaking of her, by the way, she's nominated for dance recording. And wow, the faggot showed up for this category because it is her (laughs) versus Troy Sivan, who we used to have on this planet, but he was actually blown to smithereens by Azealia Banks last week, and now we don't have him anymore. (laughs) I don't know if you heard this. Oh, of course I did. No, no, I I know you did. I'm talking to people at home. (laughs) Azealia Banks just, I mean, as is her way, rudely dismissed him after he said that he loves her song 212, and then she posted something saying, we're past 212, and then called him like a pedophile baiting faggot or something. (laughs) <laughs> I will say, this is established beef. Right. Because on Watch What Happens Live, I believe, in 2018 or something, he said in response to an Andy question that he liked Azealia Banks, but because she's controversial, he never wants to publicly say he likes Azealia Banks. Mm. So I guess she was snapping back at that because she remembers a beef. Look, okay, but at the same time, I mean, nobody's going to remember a beef like her. I have to say he should have known. But secondly, (laughs) again, you know my theory that a witch placed a curse on Azealia Banks where every time she is hilarious, she then has to say the worst shit you've ever heard. So just know that this is all part of the Rumpelstiltskin-like life she lives. She did also say this week that she loves Chris Brown's music. Which I unfortunately agree with, even if I don't like him. And that's all we will say about that. There's plenty of people in this category. I don't think that's an astounding thing to declare. Okay, what else is interesting here? I'm looking at Album of the Year, which again, um, Lana Del Rey is nominated for. And also her song uh, A&W has a nomination. Can I say something about this woman? She definitely, as I've said before, (laughs) I praise her for sticking to her guns and being like, this is my whole thing. I do... Woman in a gossamer nightgown in an attic moaning out a window. Okay, that's my whole fucking thing. The lyrics to me are always a little funny on accident. Like, she's always, like, ironically pairing spooky vocals with, here I am saying the word fucked or bad words in general, and there's meant to be some irony in between there. Mm -hmm. And maybe a couple times there were, but it's listening to it again, it's just... I don't know. It it just feels repetitive to me. I don't know. I think her entire genre is the Todd Haynes film safe. Right. No. Uh, A woman getting more pale, away from the sun, um, lost in cyclical thoughts, etc. And the girls are gagging. (laughs) Right. By the way, another iconic Azalea Banks beef. Oh, of course. Yes. Well, also, Lana will get into it with you. You know what I mean? She's rousable. Lana Del Rey. Of course. I will say that Lana... Uh, I love that you keep saying Lana. Both are acceptable. She made the name up. Yeah. <laughs> Her name's like Courtney Johnson. <laughs> she did eat that one response to Azalea where she said, you know the Addy, pull up. But if I were you, I wouldn't. Which almost but didn't completely make up for that very weird Instagram post she had where she named... Just black women in the industry, plus Ariana Grande, back when Ariana Grande was black and not Korean. (laughs) Good Lord. said that they're allowed to be sexy in their videos, but she has a stripper pole in her video and she's slut-shamed. And it was like, girl, what? (laughs) Lots going on in that post. (laughs) 
Best new artist. First of all, I was made aware of this person, Jelly Roll, last week. Do you know who this is? Uh, I think I can get that at the bodega. You can. You can. He is also a extremely popular country artist. He just did a bit with us on Kimmel, and he, he has like a winning personality and stuff. Just all of a sudden, he blew up. So I feel like it's between him and I... No, Victoria Monet is going to win, right? You can't get that many nominations. And a bunch of categories where it seems like she's not going to win and then not get Best New Artist because all these other people aren't nearly as represented in the nominations. She's up against Ice Spice and Fred again, Gracie Abrams. Gracie Abrams, that's the daughter of J.J. Abrams. Am I right? Yes. Right. And in keeping with her father, she will have lost this category. (laughs) Yes, that's J.J.'s daughter. She was just seen stepping out in New York City with Taylor Swift last night, they went to the box of all places, which is only LOL because she was in Argentina truly the night before. So she hopped on her oxygen guzzling jet and flew from Argentina to New York City just to go to the box. Grim, Grim, you don't have to do that. <laughs> also, the, so that was like minutes after she jumped into the arms of Travis Kelsey in Argentina. I'm gagging for that. Since they have this like wild romancing the stone like relationship where they're all over the like the Western Hemisphere. I'm gagging. Okay. <laughs> Let her be Joan Wilder. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If this relationship gets people to see romancing the stone, uh, it was all worth it. Wait. So I am looking up. Jelly Roll. Yeah. You telling me this ain't Bubba Sparks? You would think it was him, I do have to say. The stance is the same. He left Collie Park, got a bunch of tattoos, and now he's crooning. Right, right, right. Instead of rapping. Booty, 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 booty. Country rocking everywhere. Yes. Speaking of people switching up their flows, this could be in my Keep It segment, but I have a feeling the album will probably be good, so I don't want to prematurely be rude, but... Andre 3000 dropping his first album in over a decade on Friday, and it's no rapping, and it's him playing the flute. Excuse me? He announced it this morning. Jethro Tool? What a Jethro Tool. (laughs) There is no rapping. It is him (laughs) playing the flute, and it comes out Friday. But he has for years been studying, and like he's a trained flautist now, so... Lizzo should be shook. Uh, he certainly had to be doing something. No, if Lauren Hill came back, it's like, look, I play the bassoon now. I'll be like, okay, well, you were doing something. That's exciting. <laughs> this television writer, Kirk Moore, uh, said that when Andre 3000 was shooting season two of American Crime, that he used to, he told them that he used to secretly go to the orchestra in Dallas and play with a live audience. And he loved it because no one knew who he was. Oh, that's cool. I mean, when you're a musician, I, I assume you just want to perform in certain ways and not want to play all your old stuff again and again. So I'm surprised I don't hear more tales of things like that. Yeah. So I'm interested in it. But um, getting back to these nominations, I feel like they are, they're fine. I'm excited for SZA. I'm very excited for Victoria Monet. The Record of the Year, Album of the Year sound fine, but I just also sort of feel like I don't know, John Batiste or Taylor Swift are going to win. And so do I really care? We need new interesting artists. It just feels like a continuation of nominations that happened three, five, and seven years ago. You know, it's a little depressing to see the same names represented. By the way, she does not need four albums of the year. I know. No. I'm going to be actually killed on air one time for talking about <laughs> this woman, but I'm sorry. But not for this album. Right. Because I feel like, first of all, Midnight's feels like a footnote this year anyway considering that she's released 1,700 Taylor's versions right. ap- after it. 
You know, like who's even thinking about Midnight's? Yeah, it's just like a soft, all right-ish album. But of course, she is in Sensation, and like she'll always have on her side that like she sells literally like McDonald's every day. So um, you, can, <laughs> you can hardly argue with numbers when like nobody is buying music. So it's like she's always her own category of eligibility. That's fair. And shout out to Janelle Monae for being nominated. I the album's not really yes. for me. It's more. Uh, I like the other one better, the one with Django Jane on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like her funky Prince era. This is really more Issa Rae Sunday brunch. <laughs> but the people who vibe with that, you know, champagne and grooves. Right. They love it. Enjoy the hollandaise sauce. I'm not really into seafood. I will say, lastly, I was excited that the Arctic Monkeys were nominated for some stuff because, you know, I love them. Yeah. And it'd be nice that they showed up to the Grammys and performed. Oh, of course, Boy Genius is nominated uh, in that category, too, after... Every article on Earth told me to listen to that album. I did. It was fine. It's a super group I cannot get behind. I love all of them individually to varying degrees, but I really just cannot get into Boy Genius. I'm either not lesbian enough mm -hmm. or melancholy enough, and maybe I just don't like wearing ties with t-shirts enough i don't know or hot overalls the way lesbians can now i feel like every lesbian right. is like slick back hair and hot overalls um and, and a dress shoe yeah. the lemony snickets they're always wearing the lemony snickets that's right that's right wow but we really did nominate a ballad of a homeschooled girl which is an olivia rodrigo song in best rock song i think that's maybe correct i don't want to categorically eliminate her because she's a pop artist you know, like we put pop artists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What does rock mean anymore? It's a good question. Does it just mean men with like facial hair and then it's loud? Who knows? Well, I mean, didn't Donna Summer win a couple of her Grammys from being in the rock category? I feel like sometimes you have to slip out of your regular category to get something. No, right. Amy Mann's only Grammy is in folk, which is like almost true, but not really. I mean, if you told me she lived in the woods, I'd believe you. She lives in a magical forest called Los Feliz. Uh, it's not really like that, but okay. <laughs> All right. When we are back, I'm joined by my new bestie, Emerald Fennell. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. 
but we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Our guest today is a legitimate quintuple threat, actor, writer, director, producer, fucking Oscar winner. So we only have time for icons here, as you know, and today is no different. You know her as the writer and director of Promising Young Woman and the new mind-bending thriller Saltburn, not to mention a fun cameo as Midge, the forbidden Barbie in Barbie. So please welcome to Keep It, a whirlwind of talent, Emerald Fennell. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Hi. I don't feel like a whirlwind, but that's so kind. I feel like, like a sort of like tepid breeze. You've done <laughs> so much. And it's it's interesting even to remind myself that you were in Barbie, because of course that happened during the SAG strike. So mm-hmm. I've, it, it was it's been very fun to see everything post that. I think when I saw you Friday, it was um, truly like the day after everyone was immediately back to work. People were on sets. Yeah. Uh, you you said what? You texted Barry. Uh, and it was like, like I, get this first track going, boys. <laughs> let's get to this screening of Saltburn <laughs> immediately. Red carpet. Let's hit it. <laughs> I know it's just oh, honestly, because also what I said. I mean, quite classic. After promising a woman came out, and and it was all. It was just so unexpected. I think the response to that it was so wonderful, but also kind of like you know a bit of a roller coaster. And so for this one, I was like. You know, what what I'm really excited about is just like taking a step back and not doing really any publicity at all and just like letting the actors speak. <laughs> and then it happened. And so, uh, but look, it also meant that SAG just did like the most incredible job. And the fact that they just nailed it so profoundly made it all worth it because it's so amazing the deal that they got. But I am also terribly, terribly relieved that people can finally be looking at the people they want to look at who are the like gorgeous <laughs> gorgeous people from the film okay there are two things about saltburn that i love in particular one it's a throwback to movies like rebecca or i saw you mentioned this british movie that never comes up anymore the go-between uh this julie christie movie where people are on a rambling estate and things begin to crumble for them within the house And then secondly, it is also a 2000s period piece, which we don't Mm. have as a society yet. And I was wondering what went into making this movie a 2000s film? Like how many discussions did you have about getting, I don't know, whatever Von Dutch cap you wanted to get on the air? (laughs) I mean, it was all just for my my hopeful Von Dutch sponsorship. (laughs) I well because of the yeah because of the movies that you described basically I was sort of I was sort of looking at that genre that I love so much which is that yeah British gothic country house sort of story um and so those stories always have a framing narrative they always start with that kind of first person narrator telling you about time where their life sort of was frozen 
that they could kind of never get over. So so I always knew that because of the structure, we it would need to be a period piece up to a point. And then it's actually set in the most part of um, summer 2007, which was exactly 15 years before when we filmed it. And 15 years before anything, any time, is terrible. So wherever you are in time, 15 years ago was just unbelievably lame, you know, because the 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 wardrobe still kind of it's still kind of in our closet. We still own stuff, but we kind of hate it. Nothing's come back. It's not retro. It's not cool. It's not ironic. It's just like we all just look like our worst selves. And so it had this incredibly like humanizing effect on this very inhuman world, I guess. And you know, just knocks the edges off some of that some of that glamour. And but the conversations honestly about like the Livestrong bracelet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Of the sort of um if we're gonna have accessories, it will need to be a headband, a headscarf, a long pair of dingly dangly earrings, ten necklaces, one skinny scarf, bra showing. It's like how many things can you have on your head without like physically falling over? <laughs> <laughs> the bad fake tan, stuff like that, you know, nothing says that you are a beautiful rich girl in 2007 like also having terrible extensions and a terrible tan because everyone did so i mean just oh the 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 kind of research was so amazing you know it was so much fun like making that world real (laughs) one of the interesting things that um you've mentioned about writing this and i guess sort of your writing process in general is that you take a long time to write something in your head first uh, so what is the process like when you conceive an idea, one like salt burn, and then you are, I don't know, I guess, going throughout your day, your life, thinking about it constantly. And then when do you know it's time to actually sit down and start writing something? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit like what well, I was talking about it the other day with someone a bit like, you know, people have crushes. And the crush is generally not just a person. It's the circumstances. So you may have a crush on a person, but also it's like, oh, but if we were together, we might go to this restaurant and I would wear this outfit and then this moment might happen and then we would end up in bed and it would be like this. And, you know, lots of people have that kind of daydream all the time before they go to sleep, as they're, you know, going about their everyday life. For me, it's like, that's the writing. It's kind of the crush is the world. And it can start in all manner of ways. It can start with a scene or a character, this movie started with Oliver, with a moment of like, you know, the the first thing was Oliver, a a young man sort of saying, kind of insisting I wasn't in love with him. And then doing something that really undermined (laughs) that statement, um, which I sort of probably can't be specific about because of spoilers, but, and then it's the things and the people that kind of catch your interest and that stay. So, Saltburn just turned into one of those places that I went to a lot. And then it started, you know, other characters come in and and people come and go. And then, you know, you live in the house and bit by bit, it becomes more real, more textured, more specific. It's when the conversations stop changing. It's when you've been into every room a thousand times and everything's kind of staying as it was. Then I think, then I'm ready to write it. I kind of know because I'm like, okay. I've done every version. I've I've been in, you know, if it was immersive theatre, the most embarrassed I ever am as a human person is is, is any um, immersive theatre production. <laughs> <laughs> I have utmost respect, but as a British person, I um, um, 
completely mortified. But um, but the, for me, it's kind of like that. It's like if you've done it and you've literally seen every version of it, of that play, then it's ready to go. So that's, yeah. So it's like a purging. It'll come out like a purge. Uh, so we should say this is a movie about uh, a guy at like a, a boarding school who get who becomes sort of infatuated with this debonair fratty classmate and then eventually gets to stay with him for the summer in his uh, gorgeous estate which is called saltburn and we study their relationship and of course i think a movie that comes up a lot when people bring up this movie is the talented mr ripley and i feel mm-hmm. like the reason is we are fascinated by imposters and people who use kind of um cleverness and uh, guile to sort of like ingratiate themselves with people who are unsuspecting. And I was wondering, like, did that movie play into your writing of this? And just are you fascinated in general with imposter types? I think, well, it's really funny that that comes up so much because they're not very similar in a, in a funny way. I mean, I'm so familiar. Obviously, I, I'm obsessed. I loved the, the Minghella film, of course, and I'm obsessed with Patricia Highsmith. But actually, it's... To me, I was kind of looking so much more closely at, at that kind of like British tradition of um, of a kind of very specific like class, sex, power story. I think the thing that I'm interested in is, I suppose, the fact that we're all imposters, that we're all liars, that we're all looking for people to think we're interesting and sexy and clever and how we go about doing that. And especially at a point in our lives, you know, like at college or, you know, when we get our first job whatever, whatever those kind of like moments are where you can remake yourself and that's absolutely where Oliver is here I'm just so interested in like yeah in, in how we show people who we are how we make them like us how we make them fall in love with us and it, it was similar you know the kind of identity shift was similar in Promising a Woman too I think you know what can we do what can I do what can Cassie or Oliver do to make people think make assumptions even even if they're not true i guess the one thing i will say that is i think similar is the charm of jude law in the talented mr ripley is comparable to what jacob Elordi does here i'll be honest like i i wasn't like a regular euphoria viewer i'm like a little late to him um i just watched him priscilla recently this person is not normal he is like very extremely watchable and extremely in control and i believed every note of what he does here what was it like directing his performance specifically? Because he has to be both charming and a little like, a, he's like a dupe and also rich and also human. There's a lot going on with this character. Oh my God, totally. I mean, Jacob is just, he's just amazing. And it's a really, really difficult part. In many ways, that character is the is the most complicated because he has to be both a kind of burst of like sunshine charisma that is irresistible, but also a disappointing human. He looks like a god and he's got to play it like a mortal. And that is what Jacob just did so beautifully. And also it's just such a kind of like brilliant bit of like observational comedy. That's why Jacob was so fantastic because when he came in, the temptation, I think, a lot of people came in and they did beautiful performances, but they were too self-aware. You know, they played it like Sebastian Flight. They played it like they were kind of arch. They were... um, they knew the story they were in and what Jacob did was, which what, what I was looking for was just some bloke <laughs> who happened to be the most beautiful person on the planet and some bloke who's actually does something kind of, you know, in the writing, I made sure that Felix does something shitty or capricious or spoilt or misogynistic 
or cruel in every single scene. And the trick is that we don't care. And, you know, this movie is all about what we forgive for beauty and for kind of, and for, you know, charisma. And, and so the fact that the audience always comes out being like, he's such a nice guy. You're like, <laughs> is he? I mean, in, and then directly it's heaven. Because with him, I was like, I was always like, oh, no, you're a bad kisser. Felix has to be a bad kisser. He has to be bad in bed. He's never needed to learn how to kiss. I want to see you clamp your mouth onto that girl's face. <laughs> Or like the way he reads Harry Potter, because obviously it was it's the summer of 2007. So it's when that last Harry Potter came out, everyone had their own copy and they were all, and I was like, we'd said, we'd said like, obviously Felix would be reading Harry Potter as though it's the Iliad. Yes. <laughs> like, reading it, he's like, his mind is blown. <laughs> like, what is, it's so brilliant. And just those little things are so wonderful and when someone like Jacob who is so funny and so clever you know again he's a deceptive person because of his gorgeousness and his height you think you know you underestimate just how talented and funny and great he is Mm -hmm. yeah I mean speaking of being deceptive I mean you are such a funny and you know um charming person to be around but you're also a very sick woman (laughs) You know, uh, I was sitting in this film mouth agape for so many moments that I can't even bring up because to even spoil them or even to spoil them would be horrible. But even to mention them, you'd be like, what are you talking about? You just have to sit there and watch these moments in the theater. And there there are moments where people, the, the screening that I was in, you know, people were, they were gasping at certain points. They were afraid to laugh at a certain point there's a scene in the cemetery at the end where i was just cackling and like i couldn't (laughs) let it in anymore um and where do these twisted things come from in your mind it reminds me of like it didn't fit at all for speaking of euphoria for like sam levinson's the idol when it was like from the sick twisted mind of sam levinson but i feel like all your movies now need to say from the sick and twisted mind well this is where I'm like a really facetious priss. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't think it's that sick. Okay. I think what is sick is our kind of very like sort of facile relationship with sex and the, the huge disconnect in what we think about really and how we feel, not just in ourselves, but in like the way it's presented, right? Like, because I grew up with women's bodies being like, completely treated like with casual disdain used to like make movies a bit more palatable expected to be undressed for no reason you know like sex scenes that are kind of this like two beautiful people hairless people like rubbing against each other with sort of zero joy or kind of passion and I suppose the thing is is that like I feel very much like you know, this is a move. The, the the movies that I want to make are a little bit like fairy tale and expressionistic, so they're not hundred percent real. Like I'm never going to be able to make something that's sort of like cinema veritas. But what I do want is the feeling of what being in the grip of that un- most unbelievable kind of nightmarish desire is. That feeling of like somebody has like reached all the way down your throat. You know, that just kind of can't 
function going to go crazy feeling. And I think to have that, it needs to be a little transgressive. It needs to be tied up. There needs to be an element of sort of revulsion and um, embarrassment, shame. I don't know what I don't know what it is exactly, but like I, I think that I think that in this movie, all of the stuff that is all the stuff that is sec- I think you know that is sexy. For example, you're not seeing anything. You're just seeing someone's face in close up. You know, you're seeing two people kiss. And the nudity is not sexual. It's, I mean, it is and it isn't. You know, it's sort of about grief and sort of despair and like futility and kind of, and it's all sort of, and it's and it's funny and it's embarrassing and it's gross and it's kind of hot and difficult. And, and yeah, it just, I don't know. I, I feel like um, there's nothing in this film that shouldn't be relatable even if it's not something you would necessarily specifically do, you know, I think that I totally relate to the feeling of wanting to lick someone's bathwater. Of course. I mean, the No Doubt song. I was going to bring it up. I'm sure that's what that's about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When Gwen did it, (laughs) it was fine. But I think that's the thing. It's just like, I want to, and also you want to talk about it, right? Like, I want to talk about stuff. It was the same promising a woman. I just, I don't know about anything, really. But I want to talk about it. I want to think about it. I want to think about why we all have these feelings and why we, you know, can't quite get to the bottom of them. And that's why it's so fun making films. I do have questions about other things concerning you that are not Saltburn related, but I thought it was so interesting when I heard you say that you specifically wanted to write a movie that was um, male-centric, like the stuff you'd done previously was about women. And I was wondering what things about, I guess, male desire were you interested in conveying in this movie? And would this movie be different if it were about women? I think so. I mean, honestly, just to be honest, it it wasn't a conscious thing in that Oliver presented himself to me as Oliver. And I think, again, the genre, even if it's like Gatsby, Mm -hmm. it tends to have this sort of two men and and a sort of friendship. And I mean, you know, in inverted commas, friendship at the centre of it. And so so I think partly it was just a sort of it, it was just maybe that's the where it was coming from. I think I think certainly, of course, I thought about if it was two women. I think the thing that, for me, didn't work quite so well for me was that certainly the female friendships that I've had are tactile. They tend to be, you know, especially at that age, they tended to be a little bit more, um, you know, the the, the things, there, there were fewer barriers to a kind of physical relationship, I think. It was kind of more natural, more natural to to the girls the female friendships that I knew that you would always be sort of entwined with each other physically to some degree and I think because this movie is about not really being able to touch the person you want to touch or not in the way that you want to touch them perhaps that barrier that like certainly at the time felt like like it existed that there was a kind of physical threshold that maybe wasn't crossed in the same way with with boys of that era as it was for girls. I think, I think partially it was, it was that, but I mean, the honest answer is, is, is I don't really know. It just, it just was. And it felt like um, that's how it presented itself, the story to me. I mean, anyone who's gone to 
uh, I think I told you, an all-boys school, um, like myself, like being a gay man in an all-boys school in that era, too. You know, there's very much something about you're attracted to people, but you can't physically express it. And even a moment of, you know, like in the film or in real life of someone touching your shoulder or, you know, like grabbing your hand at a certain point, it feels so charged. And that is in this film so much. So congratulations on just getting that feel. And I think Barry is a perfect person to present that. It's been so interesting seeing his evolution as an actor as well because i think from you know killing of a sacred deer and to um banshees you know uh, he's always played sort of the off kilter kooky person and i've always been like no this man is completely gorgeous and when oh. you watch saltburn you see that he's still you know he's there's the part where he's you know sort of like walking weird and he's sort of like he's lesser than jacob elordi but there is a scene in the film where they're walking in a field and he just sort of like has to take his shirt off and you see this man just basking in the sun and you're like, oh no, this is a god too. He's not Apollo like Jacob Lordy, but you know, he is, um, he's, he's circling Olympus. Hermes or something. Yeah, you know. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think the thing is about Barry is his charisma is like out of control and his charisma is kind of Robert Mitchum, you know, mm. it's the Cape Fear De Niro. It's yes. the, oh no, I know this is bad. I know he shouldn't be in that playhouse. You know, I'm, I mean, he shouldn't be in that playhouse with that little girl. Uh-oh. <laughs> but also, yeah. oh God, uh-oh. You know, I just rewatched that. Likewise, yes. Oh God. Cape, terrifying. Makes me so, feel so unsafe even saying the words Cape Fear De Niro. Oh. <laughs> so in such a fun way, right? Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes you want to feel unsafe. And I think... You know, that that, it, that was always the thing about Oliver, about the casting of Oliver, is that Oliver is not necessarily, particularly at the beginning, the person that you necessarily that you think you're going to leave the theatre not being able to stop thinking about. And that is always, that's part of how, that's part of how it works, right? Is that you don't see him coming and that what he does, what Oliver's skill is, and, and there are these people who are amazing and when you meet them, you're like, fuck, they kind of see immediately. They can see right in. They know they and they can see something that you can't even see about yourself. And I think that's the thing about Oliver is that he is kind of enigmatic to the end. He can give other people what they want, most of them, but he doesn't ever get what he wants. You know, he's this kind of he's this bottomless pit of kind of desire. And and so so in casting him, it needed to be somebody who the closer you got you know, physically with the camera, the less you knew. That there was this, there was a constant feeling of just thinking you could grasp him and not quite, fingers never quite getting any purchase. It's, and that's what, that is what he does so beautifully. That's what Barry always does is you can never be sure. Mm -hmm. You can never be sure. You look at those eyes and he could kill you or he could fuck you or he could destroy your life or he could just offer you a cup of tea. That's the thing about Barry, Barry's face as an actor is it is so it's like a it's like you can read anything into everything he does. And and so and it needed to be that way for Oliver, because, you know, having an unreliable first person narrator in a visual medium is very complicated. So you need somebody enigmatic because otherwise it sort of doesn't work. 
Final question. I think I first became interested in just you as a person and how uh, casually funny you are watching the run up to your Oscar win for Promising Young Woman, seeing you just like on a red carpet, just being just very wisecracking, very funny. But of course, that movie, while it has comic elements, is so bleak and has such grotesque elements, has is tragic in many obvious ways. But was there a particular joy in promoting that movie? Like, I don't know, like, like, was there a catharsis in writing it that then talking about the movie, like, I don't know, it made it more fun? Because every time I watched an interview with you, you were so, I don't, I don't know how else to put it, funny, you know? I think it's, a, um, it's self-preservation because it was grueling, actually. Yeah. Really grueling. And it was, and it was very personal. Um, and I think that's the thing, you know, partly the reason why I didn't want to center myself so much during this publicity talk, she says on a podcast because <laughs> because of the actor strike I kind of necessarily was is there is something about I think you know not just being a filmmaker but I think also maybe peculiar to being a female filmmaker is that people want you to be a memoirist I think they want to know to what degree it's true whatever that means and it means that for Promising Young Woman me and Carrie also asked the most outrageous amount mm. of personal kind of questions that were kind of now I find staggering. Now I and, and and also that you have that sort of sinister thing that the film is all about, which is you have to smile and nod, mm. while a man you've never met before asks if you've been sexually assaulted Ugh. and could you detail it, please, for him. And that was daily, constantly. And I think that humour was the only way of getting out of that alive without wanting to fucking murder people. And also, it means I can keep some distance. I think everything is quite funny. Mm -hmm. I think everything is funny, really. It's all, you know, I mean, I will laugh at a funeral. I'll laugh harder the more I love someone because I don't know how else to process things. (laughs) And I find this, um, you know, it is, it's it's an incredibly exposed, it's already exposing making a film, Mm -hmm. especially a film about sex or about, you know, about what Promising a Woman was about, which was obviously very personal. And then you find yourself in in a sort of strange world where you're also asked to not only justify your work, but kind of yourself. Mm. Um, And so the best way of dealing with that, I think, is just to kind of laugh it off. And then you don't have to, um, yeah, you don't have to sort of serve yourself up in a platter on quite the same way. Mm. Well, lighthearted end note. Me, I mean, can you give me one word? We didn't get to talk about it. But you, we talked about it a bit before at dinner, but will you give me one word to describe Andrew Lloyd Webber? Genius. Yeah. I wrote the book for Cinderella in the UK. And, look, and they called it Bad Cinderella here because they had to let the audiences know that this that, isn't your mother Cinderella. The thing is, the thing is, is that Andrew Lloyd Webber has a orchestra in his head a literal orchestra in his head and he can remember every piece of music he's ever thought of ever occurred to him Mm. and it is you know the thing is it's just you know for for my life I want to work with people who are unique and and that is a unique he is it is an extraordinary thing to watch him conceive of music it's I've not you know I don't know that there's anyone quite like that and so you know, in, in everything that I do, I want to be, I, yeah, I want to be kind of watching people who have something that I couldn't possibly have myself work. It's, you know, it's thrilling. And everyone who worked on that was so amazing. And the cast of that was so incredible. So, yeah. Great. Thank you so much for being here. 
You're welcome. Oh, please come back every time you write anything. If, a post-it note, yes. whatever. Just come on back. <laughs> Hopefully next time you will have a sexy actor instead. <laughs> I'll, I'll be off on like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos's yacht or something. Just <laughs> with a harem. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you, Emerald. Yeah. Such Thank a pleasure. You. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot on this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Barbara Streisand finally released her Bible. It's about as long. Uh, yeah, her thousand-page memoir, My Name is Barbara, is out. And we've been reading, or rather listening, because the only way to consume a diva's memoir is by listening to her voice, as we learned with um, Mariah Carey's memoir. Certainly. You're really just sort of missing something if you aren't listening to them read their own memoir. And then you also get the fun sort of ad-libs and of course this includes music and clips and so i think that there's there's really only one definitive way to take in this memoir totally well also in general the way it's written it's not like it's prose really you know it's really straightforward she's just chatting yeah exactly exactly (laughs) and also she's chatting about a lot of like i mean it gets it's very biographical but my favorite thing that she keeps returning to is her color preferences. She cannot help herself bring up, she's like, burgundy, a color I've always loved. Lavender, which I've always loved. Greens, which I don't like. It's just, she's so aesthetically driven. She's so obsessive about visual details. That's something you discover in this memoir that like, when she has a vision for something, it is it is like she already sees it. it like the thing happens before her and she is basically not willing to compromise about her vision because it's so strong in her mind she can't avoid it. I don't know. It's, it's it's something I would compare to like OCD or something. There's 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 something really driven about or uh, complete in her mind all the time. She's never unsure. 
But um, I, I, I was saying at the beginning of this podcast, listening to her voice, one, she has such a lovely speaking voice, so it's great to listen to the memoir period. But also, I'm just so obsessed with the period in an artist's life, particularly when they become explosively popular, when you're getting to know the forces that are conspiring to make them happen. We talked about with the Mariah memoir, how when she's being a, a backup singer for people like Brenda K. Starr, when Tommy Mottola first gets the tape, the things that are coming together to make them mm-hmm. way bigger than the average emerging artist, that's just always so interesting to me. And there's something in particular about Barbara Streisand that's fascinating because in the 60s, although she started on Broadway in the very early 60s, and you hear about that in this uh, musical, I Can Get It For You Wholesale, where she met her first husband, Elliot Gould. And there's a legendary fight with the director about how to stage her main scene, which is just... Arthur Lorenz. Yes, who, by the way... What a career uh, has written. Yeah. yeah, wrote like everything from West Side Story to the movie Rope mm-hmm. to uh, The Way We Were. Lots going on with him. And then eventually he sends her a letter about her first album when it comes out and is such a fucking dick about it. You would not. It's like what? It's, it's like he's mad that she's emerging. I don't know. Anyway, back to my point. Barbara Streisand emerged when things like Beatlemania were happening. So she felt very traditional in a way while also being extremely new because she has that kind of daffy rambunctious quality when she sings that is both really really funny and really relatable but at the same time she's singing all these really Mm -hmm. old songs so just the fact that she exploded at that moment when things are starting to become radical in popular culture remains really interesting yeah i mean there is the bonsoir where she had you know her first sort of nightclub act nightclub act and it was it was on 8th street uh and that is where you mentioned that she was sort of doing broadway songs and doing this old stuff and you know it, it wasn't very um doo-wop or jazzy or like what what was really happening at the time you know like it was the 60s right and it's so interesting hearing her talk about that and how she's sort of really finding her aesthetic i mean it's you brought up lana del rey before not to say that you know it's lana del rey s but lana del rey i feel like sort of borrows a bit from that right she came out in a modern era and was sort of like i'm a throwback I enjoy this kind of singing, this kind of vibe. And it's very interesting to listen to Barbara's memoir and hear her describe her roots and how her career began and to realize that she was even doing a bit of a throwback. She wasn't singing songs that were particularly current when she was doing her nightclub act. And so that would have been... um, something different than what you would be getting if you were just going to see anybody else singing and performing in New York City at that time. Uh, right, right, right. And she often like combed like unpopular older musicals for songs to mm-hmm. like kind of put her stamp on. I, I think one thing that's really interesting about this book, and I just want to say, please just pick up this book. I, I literally just want to live in it. I'm so thrilled to be listening to it. And I'm, of course, not even close to done. But I love her kind of relationship with her own talent because she is sure of it, but never like... That's not what she's most obsessive about. In a way, like her singing abilities, she kind of thinks they're like this throwaway thing that she can do. She's sort of obsessed with being an actress first and then singing is she what she says she pays the bills with. But like she treats her singing talent like, oh, I just had this old thing in the closet. Oh, this old velvet thing, isn't it nice? I got it cheap at a thrift shop. It's $10. And then we she like puts it on and people love it and think it's fabulous. But it's it's so interesting listening to her just be sure of herself and establish things like creative control at a time when there is like no precedent for a female artist getting that kind of 
um, wherewithal, really. You know, she and her longtime manager, Marty Ehrlichman, they established early on that she would get a huge amount of creative control in whatever she did. And that came in real handy when it came to picking album covers that only she liked or making uh, choices for her variety special that only she wanted to do. And because she got to make those choices, she has this completely unique path. Like she doesn't sound like anybody else. You know, if she had let A&R people choose make these choices for her, I'm sure there'd be a lot more obvious parallels between her and other artists. The only one I can really think of is Carol Burnett in that there's a combination of goofy with extreme dignity. You know, it is never out of control. You just like, you really believe in the uh, the integrity of this artist, even as they're be- giving you something very gonzo. I think they have, and she comes up in the book a couple times. It's interesting that you bring up the cover art because w- one of my favorite eras within the book is when she gets into the late 70s and the 80s, because I think that's my favorite Barbara era anyway, music-wise. And when she describes the creation of the Wet album cover, basically she says she's in the studio space and she likes how the couch looks and she likes how like the slick um, blackness of the setting and she realizes how good she would look um, sort of in that setting and then she would look really good with like her hair wet uh and then she's like well let's call the album wet and then also make every song on the album reference water (laughs) which is such a kooky way to come up with an album and that's of course when we get um enough is enough her song with donna summer which is fucking massive disco song and she talks about how the song first came to her and she didn't really like it but she was convinced and then she got donna on it but it still wasn't really working until to make it fit with the album they add in that beginning where she's like it's raining it's pouring (laughs) and i'm like girl (laughs) keeping it literal as possible yes (laughs) literally literal uh there's a funny funny segment where she talks about recording that album with donna and they're in the studio and they're just powerfully like singing at each other and donna literally falls off her stool in the studio because they're just like singing at each other uh and that is so um just amazing to hear and when you talk about her being very sure of herself, but also sort of insecure and just sort of, it's really sort of about wanting to be a student and sort of take in everything that she can. I think that's why she clashed with Arthur Lorenz so early on, because she was, she wanted to learn um, from these great directors and people on Broadway. And I think that what really sort of helped her as an actress was she was, she really describes how she hated even her acting class that she took because once she learned what blocking is, like you have to do it the same every night. She didn't want to do that anymore. (laughs) She's like, if I'm going to perform, it needs to be free. I need to be able to do whatever I want and change it. And that's what she clashed with Arthur about. But when she talks about making that album with Donna, she says, Donna, well, how would you sing this part? And Donna Summer's like, you're Barbara Streisand. Why are you asking me? how to sing, you know, this song. And then that goes into her very next album, which is my favorite fucking Barbara album. Guilty. I've said this before on the show. Guilty. And just talks about how her manager um, mentioned that Barry Gibb had like so many songs in the top 20 
at that time. Um, which is very funny because then she discusses how she never paid attention to the charts. And if you asked, and if you asked her like what her highest charting songs were, she have to ask her manager because she was re- she really only thinks about the songs in terms of whether she liked them. And when Barry comes to her, she describes just sort of like how it was one of the first times where he had written all the songs in L.A. before flying to record with her. So she said it was one of her best recording experiences ever because she just got to go in and sing and didn't really have to do anything else. Yeah, right. Just could be free to experiment and do what she does. But that also dovetails with Another thing I find so fascinating about this, you basically just touched on it, where not only was she resistant to blocking, she hated when she was in a show that uh, the directors would say things like, okay, lock that choice in or freeze that, where she like, if she did something off the cuff, they would then want her to keep it and do it for every single performance. And she was like, first, uh, first of all, she didn't want to do that. But secondly, she was so she's so um, unashamed of asking why in any given situation. And that is what separates her from, I think, most other people, especially emerging artists. She was not afraid to be like, why is it always like that? Why do I have to do that? And it's not like she was asking it to demand attention or to mm-hmm. like uh, put down what they said. She just didn't get it. And she wasn't afraid to say, I don't get this. I have my own instincts. And it's that weird, just solid sense of drivenness about what she can provide even if somebody else is insistent about their vision, that makes her just one of the definitive artists. And in fact, she's probably the definitive entertainer of the last half of the 20th century for that reason. Right. And she talks about taking things too literally. Yes. Too, because my other favorite exchange in the chapter on Guilty is the lyrics that Barry wrote, particularly for Woman in Love. It's, uh, it's, it's, she says, it's about this woman. And she says, I'd do anything to get this man. And she, she goes on this like whole, um, uh, she goes on this whole aside about how I wouldn't even know how to manipulate a man. You know, like I don't relate to this at all. And then she realized that she was taking the words too literally in thinking of trying to think of herself as this vamp. And she was like, once I think of them metaphorically, then I can relate to the song better. And I love how she does this whole aside about that. And she ends it with, fuck it, forget the words, just do it. <laughs> and hearing her say, fuck it, forget the words, just do it, is <laughs> it, it's worth it to get all the way there in the book and just hear her talking about creating that album, which I believe she shot that cover with um, Mario Caselli who is the photographer who did her Playboy cover, too. Mm, mm. Uh, yeah, uh, there, there are just unbelievable amounts of uh, pleasures in this movie. Also, it's like she talks about how she both liked awards and then was kind of like she can't remember certain Grammy nights. She can't remember like she, she remembers when she tied Catherine Hepburn for Best Actress or whatever. But um, it's actually something I love about this album is hearing she she recounts a lot of what critics have said about her and like just like nice compliments she's gotten over the years and she can't help when it's like a long um compliment from a critic afterwards she'll always say oh isn't that beautifully written or something like that it's like well yes you're being complimented <laughs> <laughs> or um when they were describing her in funny girl and the review said that she was uh cameo faced yes confusing <laughs> 
And she's like, well, I guess that's, I guess that's a compliment. I don't know. <laughs> she says that routinely she is called interesting and she makes the pretty awesome observation. Interesting is what you say when you don't know what to say. And it's like, yes. right, there's something dubious about that, too. I mean, she, she kind of skates around how harrowing it is to be, quote unquote, called unconventionally attractive all the time. Like, she'll, she'll like, mm-hmm. kind of get into it. and Or, like, if it's unbelievably painful for her, she s- sort of, she doesn't really go into how, how painful it is. But it is, it, it must have been so daunting for her. Like, it's like almost every critic and they were mostly male critics at the time, had to say something about the way she looks in a way that was shady. They had to say that every time. Which, of course, makes perfect sense because even leading up to, what, a few years ago, you read any magazine profile of a woman and there's always a description of how they look and always a description of whether or not they're sexy, whether or not they're unattractive. And it's always from the perspective of how the writer feels and whether or not they're attracted to her. Right. No, it's like establishing a sense of power on behalf of the writer. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. here's the star, but let me tell you what this star doesn't know about how they look, you know? Mm-hmm. What's also interesting about the book, and I feel like the main thrust of it is... Now, I'm going to bring up an actress from Girls, Jemima Kirk. I don't know if you're obsessed with her Instagram, but whenever she does Q&As, they are off the wall and hilarious. But she recently answered the question, how much denial is healthy with there's facts and there's truth, reality and perspective, stick with the facts, acknowledge the reality, then you can play around with perspective until you find a truth that makes you happiest. And this book. This memoir truly opens up with Barbara talking about how she didn't want to write this book. She's been asked to for years, but there's so many stories out there about her that aren't true that she has to make the definitive truth available and be known because there's nothing stronger than the power of the written word. She recounts how, you know, she was with, um, Jim Brolin at the grocery store recently. Right. And I love her describing love her describing we were driving back and I wanted some ice cream. So we just walk into the grocery store. And imagine just Barbara walking into the fucking grocery store. That would to be get some ice cream. I would be smithereens <laughs> for tell if I saw that. That's like those random photos that I feel like came out this year or last year of Rihanna strolling a grocery store for something or Beyonce just popping in the target to get something like when you're a star that huge, there has to be something thrilling almost about just going into a grocery store again and picking up something yourself. But someone saw them and said, Oh, it's so good to see you two back together. And she's like, back together. When were we ever apart? And she talks about another story about how a friend (laughs) was talking to someone else. And they said, well, Barbara's a bitch. I've read it. And her friend said, Barbara's not a bitch. She's one of the most loveliest people I've ever worked with. Well, no, I read it. So I think she's a bitch. And then Barbara recounts, because that person had read something about me, they believed it more than my own friend who told them what I was actually like in person. That's the power of the written word. And so she's really about... Light Oprah vibes, generally speaking, in this book. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh-huh. It's very much, I am going to give you the truth. I like facts. She, yes. And it's funny that the facts, though, 
are sometimes subjective as well. Because you mentioned, like, she can't remember certain Grammy performances. And and she also says that she doesn't remember, you know, which songs are number one or certain things in her career. But she always seems to remember things that have been said about her critically or compliments or... Things she disagrees with. Things she disagrees with and then things she does agree with that a friend has told her. And I feel like her reality is obviously true to her, but it's obviously a very interestingly constructed reality. Correct. Yes, it's satisfying to her. You can hear that she's satisfied with what she thinks of it, and you sort of wonder how reliable the narration can be from time to time, but honestly, it's a pleasure to listen to. So, Oh, one of the biggest ones about her reality, right, is um, she talks a bit about how she almost shoplifted as a kid. Yes. And she's in the store and she was being followed and she threw the bag down and left and never shoplifted again because the embarrassment um, would be worse than like she didn't have a problem with initially doing it because she wanted to be bad. She was rebelling. But the embarrassment of being caught by the police or handcuffed or anything is what would do her in. And she then goes on to say, even when I'm in a hotel and there's something that I want, I always ask well, can I buy this? And then they're usually like, well, you can just have it. And that's her response to why she doesn't shoplift anymore. You should just be truthful and ask for things. And I laughed so hard at that (laughs) because I'm like, what the fuck else are you going to say to Barbara Streisand being like, oh, I love no. this trinket in your hotel. Can I buy it? Right. That's like five ninety nine <laughs> men we have left out for like guests of the hotel. Yes, you can have that, Barbara. Can you imagine you telling your manager, I charge Barbara $10.99. Meanwhile, <laughs> 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 oh she God. can buy anything. Yes, right. She's the world's richest person. Never forget that this is, yeah, one of the, it's very Oprah in that regard, right? Just right. an insanely rich woman who can get anything at her beck and call. So it's, it's interesting. She has a compound in Malibu. Picture building yeah. on like a beach. It makes, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. But she's still tied to her upbringing. Yeah. And so, so, so some part of her doesn't feel like she is the most wealthy person in the world. You know, she still talks about how her, one of her favorite meals is, um, a um, Swanson TV dinner with fried chicken and mashed potatoes and a Sara Lee chocolate cake. Also, speaking of this, she has a pretty acute memory for a lot of stuff in her childhood, too. I always say, like, I feel like someone like Barbara Streisand is a little obsessed with bringing up her childhood because it makes them seem relatable. The way, like, Jennifer Lopez is always like, I'm from the Bronx. Like, I'm like you. I'm from somewhere, as opposed to being a gigantic, you know, star of who lives a lavish life. It's like, you know, one, once upon a time, I didn't. But at the same time, it, I think it is impressive how long, it's like, you're in her childhood for, like, a number of chapters before you even begin to get into the entertainment portion of her career. So anyway, get into the book. That's all I have to say about that. It's so fabulous. Yeah. I mean, J-Lo is a perfect comparison, right? I mean, there's there's, there's just something so fascinating about this book. And I would love J-Lo's memoirs at some point in our future when she's ready to really dive into it and describe things. Because there's really just something in this book, in Mariah's book, in Britney's book too, to a lesser degree. There's really just something about the most famous people in the world, like stars that you're obsessed with and you consume their art, um, their music, you consume images of them and stories of them and myths of them. 
and just seeing how they have come to where they are. And like you said in the beginning of this, like just the random choices, the people that they meet, the places that they go that somehow lead to them becoming the most famous person in the world the way that someone else didn't. Right, right. Yeah, and you keep thinking, like, this sounds like any other artistic mind, but something about this completely worked and, you know, transcended and now is legendary. Anyway, um, fantastic, fantastic memoir. It is long, but it's absolutely fucking worth it. And we will be back with our favorite segment of the episode, Keep It. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. And let me tell you what I'm going to say sayonara to this week. I'm going to go first. Miss mm-hmm. Bezos. Oh, no. In Vogue. Lauren Sanchez herself. Lauren Sanchez Bezos. First of all, have you seen these photos? Because they look crazy. It has that gloss on it, which immediately told me, <laughs> Here comes Annie Leibovitz with her one trick. And, <laughs> and lo and behold, it was her. It's it, the, it, the most unflattering photo you've ever seen of them cramped up next to one another in a pickup truck. It's, I, it's almost like a parody of the Bound 2 video that yes. Kim Kardashian and Kanye were in because it's just so ridiculous. And then... The other photos of her are so unglamorous. And here's the thing. There are a lot of complaints from people that say we should not be propping up billionaires uh, and rewarding them with covers like this. I mean, it's Vogue. I don't really give a fuck about that. I just read Vogue for the glamour. Okay? Uh And they are the most unglamorous photos. Lauren Sanchez has no glamour to be had. Jeff Bezos is not a hot man. Nor like an eminently photographable man. Yes. Like there's like there's Why no am I looking at sex, this? No sex appeal between them. I also think like the look on her face, it always feels like they caught her between expressions. Like it's not what she meant to look like in the picture. Right. It's Annie Leibovitz on autopilot for one. And it's just not glam. No. There's a famine of beauty in this photo <laughs> shoot called Andre Leontali. Yes, right. <laughs> you think he would have let this happen? The gloss on the picture is like very ersatz, very, it, it just, it's a, it's a gross feel. There's no sensuality in these pictures at all. I will say that she gagged Vanity Fair a bit, Anna Wintour did, because you know, Vanity, that's, that's something that I would have expected in Vanity Fair. Wow. Take that. Maybe not under Radica though. Right. Precisely. Under the Penguin, um, Graydon Carter, when he used to run it, <laughs> maybe, maybe we would have seen them in it <laughs> then. Definitely. <laughs> With Annie Leibovitz's 90th Disney princess photo shoot of the year or whatever. Aren't we, aren't we done with her? I am just, there's nothing left to see. I just don't want to see it anymore. I, she, she had a couple of good, I love that Bruce Springsteen in the trench coat. I love that picture of OJ uh, uh, leaving the courtroom, which by the way, she staged. That was not um, an authentic moment captured on film. Uh, but other than that, that's the end of that. I, I know. <laughs> You're disappointed that OJ didn't give you a, 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 a genuine artistic moment, but oh well. OJ? A liar? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Now I've heard it all. <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me if I did it, 
isn't a memoir. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. He did do it? I know. It seems crazy. Huh. Um, I think that we're missing some iconography from Vogue, which is interesting because, you know, Vogue is very commercial. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, you know, it's, it, it sells to a different audience. But um, I don't know. I liked Nicki Minaj's cover. Her 73 questions was unusually subdued, but I kind of liked hearing that side <laughs> of her. I kind of liked it. Like, I, I love, I love like an unamused Nikki. She was on some Xanax. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Just like answering the questions and moving on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like she heard the number 73 and she's like, I'm not wasting my time on any single one of these. 73? I'll give you three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will also say that um, her interview, though, with the Vogue podcast is fantastic and much better than the 73 questions. Oh, all right. I have not listened to that yet. Yeah. Um, Lewis, what's your keep it? Uh, my keep it makes me sad this week because uh, I was Aww. looking forward to this. I know you seem disappointed already, too. My keep it goes to the movie Quiz Lady, which stars Aquafina and Sandra Oh. You love quizzes and ladies. Yeah, both of my favorite <laughs> things in one place, finally. It had never been done. Uh, like once every 10 years, we get a movie that is like sort of remotely about trivia. You know, you get like mm-hmm. quiz show in the 90s, uh, Slumdog Millionaire in the 2000s. And now we have uh, Quiz Lady, which is a movie that is just on uh, Hulu. Um, and it's about uh, Aquafina plays a girl who her life kind of sucks. And she's obsessed with this TV show hosted by Will Ferrell. That's a, a quiz show. And she eventually gets on it. But anyway, unfortunately, and I say this as somebody who wants to watch trivia all the time. Literally, as I drive to Palm Springs, I'm listening to like game shows on YouTube and just answering questions out loud to myself like a crazy person. Trivia is just not telegenic in a scripted narrative. Like the point of trivia is that you don't know if they're going to get it right or not. And there has to be something genuine about whether they're going to get it. Scripting it doesn't make it Mm. interesting. Like in the movie Quiz Show, that movie is good because it's about watching somebody cheat. Like you're like, oh, I have to fake that I'm knowing this stuff. So you're watching Ray Fiennes go through the motions of making himself endearing to an audience while pretending to come up with all these extremely difficult answers. Um, Yeah, this movie doesn't have much going on for it narrative-wise, and I feel like both Aquafina and Sandra Oh, playing her zany sister, are making outsized character choices to compensate for a lack of interesting story. And it's just like, I'm so used to finding Sandra Oh, like one of our best actresses. I mean, that's somebody who's amazing in uh, Killing Eve. She's the reason Grey's Anatomy is a classic as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's, it's that character who makes that show seem mm-hmm. grounded at times when you know it's not fucking grounded at all. It's my least favorite thing I've seen Sandra Owen. You mean ghosts talking to Catherine Heigl isn't grounded? <laughs> that's still happening, by the way. <laughs> On the set of this That's Amore movie she's doing with John Travolta, I absolutely know the ghosts are swirling. <laughs> Aquafina in the film. Uh, she talking with some flavor? <laughs> uh, you know what? No, actually. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Back to basics. Yes, correct, correct. Is, <laughs> is she your sister like Joni Mitchell was last week? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what? I think that you are really going to like this upcoming um, trivia movie, though. Which is? I'm hoping my spec script gets on the blacklist. Oh, but it is God, called, me too. But it is called, it is called The Snap. 
Yeah, uh-huh. uh huh. And it is God. about this plucky gay YouTuber who, what if I left? who gets who gets onto Jeopardy <laughs> what? and fulfills his dream of meeting Alex Trebek. Oh my God! <laughs> well, you can see the rising action is fabulous. I can't wait to see who recreates this iconic moment. Lucas Hedges, baby, where are you? But in my story, oh, oh, I can't wait to hear your take on it. He's closeted and comes from a very religious family. And so, oh, Jesus. The, the, sorry, mom. The drama is he can't reveal that he's gay, but when he does the snap, Alex says, faggot. He comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Merv Griffin rises from the dead and says, hey, queen, I'm back. Uh, who right. would play you? I, I think, I, again, I always say, if anybody, it has to be Lucas Hedges, right? Deep set eyes, mm. you know, pale boy. I mean, it's all there. That's true. That's true. Lucas Hedges with glasses. I see it. Right? <laughs> what a vision. You're like Barbara. You have a vision and you're not wavering. <laughs> all right. That's our show this week. Thank you to Emerald Fennell for being here. She was and, awesome. Uh, I hope she comes back again soon. Yeah. I think she'll keep making movies. In my opinion, she will too. I see that for her. Yes, right. Honestly, I see maybe not her next movie. I think within the next two movies, she's going to be in it. Definitely. We miss her from The Crown. We didn't even get into The Crown. Yeah, and I think we're going to get some probably Barbara directing Yentl-style videos of her directing herself, and that would be very fun. Oh, fuck yes. We need way more of those things, yes. All right, we'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Fertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Megan Patzel and Rachel Gajewski, and to Matt DeGroote and David Tolls for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.